Last week we were in Luke 14 and we talked about this parable or this event as Jesus was going to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And he approached this man who had dropsy and he asked the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? And they were silent and they waited and Jesus healed him. And then he goes to the house of the Pharisees and he sees how they're interacting, how they're sitting amongst themselves. How they're watching each other and they're looking for the best seat in the house. They're looking for the seat of most honor. And we walked away from that with the big idea that if we are completely satisfied in Jesus Christ, then we will wholeheartedly serve others and then particularly, as we'll see today, the poor. Alright, so if we're completely satisfied in Jesus Christ, we'll wholeheartedly serve others, particularly the poor. And last week we talked about this idea of being completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. Am I satisfied? And we talked about that there's this internal murmur, this internal sound that we have that won't be quiet, that continues to repeat itself and saying, Brit, you're not good enough. Brit, you don't measure up. Brit, you need to do more. You need to do more. You've got to perform. You've got to prove yourself. But I asked you guys, how are you satisfied? Are you satisfied in Jesus Christ? Remember we had a satisfaction survey. Are you not satisfied, somewhat satisfied, satisfied, very satisfied, or completely satisfied? We want to be completely satisfied. And Jesus showed clearly that these Pharisees, they weren't satisfied. That they didn't have rest. As he talked about them, about this healing on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was this picture of rest, that we would be completely trusting Jesus Christ, and we have this complete freedom in Him, and I can rest in that. And so I don't have to prove myself if I'm trusting Him, and if I have freedom in Him. But Jesus showed that the Pharisees, they weren't bound by God's law, they were bound by their own laws that they had created, and this need to perform according to them. They were so lost in their man-made rules that they even denied, walked by this man who was suffering, who needed to be healed on the Sabbath, and they condemned Jesus for healing him. And then they were bound by their need to compare each other, as we saw as they sit by the table, sat in the table. They needed to compare each other. They needed to have the seat of honor. I need to look at you. I need to compare myself. How am I doing? And all this to try and quiet this murmur. All this to try and quiet this need to prove myself. And so we're in the same place, at the same table, at the same event. Okay, we're still at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus has now talked to the Pharisees sitting at the table. And now he turns and he talks to the lead Pharisee, to the ruler of the Pharisees. The guy sitting at the head of the table. Jesus is not done. He wants to show them their perspective. And he wants to clearly communicate to them their position. And so that's where we pick up in verse 12 today. I'm going to read verse 12 through 24 in English first and then Melanie in Spanish. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that, that, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So I realized as I was studying this week and preparing this message, this probably would have been a better message for Josh to teach because this is all about party planning, okay? And we all know what an amazing job Josh did at coordinating planning Giovanni and Melissa's wedding, right? So this would have been a better passage for him to teach because it's all about planning a party, okay? As you look at the first verse in verse 12, it says, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, when you invite people over, when you host other people, this is what I want to talk about. And I want you guys to understand just a couple pieces of the historical um, context and what's going on here. Because in this time, in the first century, there was this huge rule of reciprocity, okay? What you did for me, I was going to do for you. And throughout the social system, we were all connected. And if I gave you something, I expected something in return. And the way for me to move up in the social class was to do for you and you do for me. The people that I knew were going to be able to elevate me. If I hung around these people, I was like these people and I was going to be lifted up. And so if I invited you over, if I invited you to my party, I expected an invitation in return. Or I expected something in return that would help elevate me, that helped bring me up. One scholar says the ethics of reciprocity the gift and obligation system that tied every person from the emperor in Rome to the child in the most distant province into an intricate web of social relations. It it connected everyone. Everyone understood this. Everyone was tied into this. And then the second piece is at the table. We talked about this briefly last week. The table was a place where these social relationships were lived out. At the table, we were all equal. At the table, we identified with each other. If I sat down with you and I had a meal with you, then that was the best way, the most clear way that I could say, I identify with you, I'm the same with you, you and I are together, we are friends, we're on the same page. If we sat down and if we enjoyed a meal together. So those are the two things to keep in mind as Jesus is sharing this parable and as he talks about inviting and who this host invites. And the first thing he talks about is creating the guest list. You know, if you've planned a wedding, if you've planned an event, the first thing you've got to decide is, well, who am I going to invite? And it's usually not the party that makes the party, it's usually the people that make the party, right? Who's going to be there? If you think about for the Oscars, the after-Oscar party, it doesn't matter how big the party is, how fancy the party is, it's who actually goes to that party. Who showed up? Who did we see? Who did we get to hang out with? And so I want us to think about our considerations when we throw a party, when we invite people, when we host people. What is it that we think about in our culture? And I will... I never did this when Nita and I were planning our wedding, 
But as we go through the list, I've heard some people will look at it and say, well, aunt so-and-so. She kind of gets on my nerves, but she's got some money and she'll probably bring us a really good gift. So maybe we should consider bringing her and letting her come because I know she's going to give us something in return. And we think about the opportunity or what's it going to look like when others that are there at my party, that are there at my event, and they see this person, are they going to think highly of me? Or are they going to think less of me? And we think about the opportunity based on who we can invite. And another thing is our expectations. The expectations of the society, our expectations of our family. What has my dad said? What has my mom said? What has my in-law said? Who should I invite? Who do I have to invite? What are their expectations for who comes? And that takes a place as well. And a lot of times we respond off of guilt. And then lastly, our resources. We can only afford to have 150 people come to our reception. So we have to eliminate anyone over 150, right? We've got to be able to select. We've got to be able to decide who's not going to attend because these are all the resources I have. So those are some things that limit us. And per Josh's direction, I went to the knot.com. All right. This is a wedding site that directs you through the, your wedding, that will take you through planning your wedding and the reception that follows. And it gives these lists. It says these are criteria for cutting people. These are criteria for cutting people off your list. This is who you don't want to have on the list. It says if you have never spoken to, met, or heard the name of a particular guest, he gets cut. <laughs> Regardless of what your dad says and how close of a friend they are, if you don't know them, if you haven't been talking to them, they're done. They're off. Okay? Anyone whose bedtime occurs before 9 p.m., they will miss the cake cutting, so don't feel bad about nixing all the under 12-year-olds. I mean, really, what's a 12-year-old going to bring to my wedding, going to bring to my reception, except they're going to run around, they're going to be crazy, they're going to eat the food, they're not going to bring an extra gift, they're just going to cause me extra problems. I know I have four kids, 12 and under, okay? They just cause extra hassle. Let's, let's cut them. And then last it says, single friends who want to bring a significant other only get an end guest if they've been in a relationship for a year or more or live with that person. So we're starting to create rules, right? You can see the one, what's in it for me? Are they appropriate? What are other people going to think? And then like, well, let me create some further rules to, to thin that down and to get down to the, really, the people that I want to be there, the people that I want to represent me and that I want to enjoy this time with. But we don't want to create a guest list based on our culture, and we don't want to create a guest list based on what I want, what you want. We want to create a guest list based on what Jesus Christ has shown us and what He's commanded us and what He's made an example of. So that's what we're going to look at right now. We're going to look at Jesus' instructions. As you look at the second part of verse 12, this is Jesus speaking. And He says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now these are strong words. But I want you guys not to misunderstand. Jesus is making a statement. He's making a radical statement. But he's not telling us, 
As you become a Christian, that means you can no longer have dinner with your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. You can't invite over the friends that you already had. Jesus is not saying that. Okay? This was a, a Jewish idiom. It was a figure of speech. Okay? He means what he's saying, but he's saying you should prefer not those that can pay you back. Not your brother, not your sister, not your rich relatives and neighbors. But you should prefer these people. You should prefer the lame, the blind, the crippled, the poor. You should prefer them so much that it looks like you don't want to invite over those that were closest to you, those that could repay you. And so why don't we invite our friends, our brothers, our relatives, our rich neighbors? He says very clearly, because they can pay you back. They have this opportunity to reciprocate, like we talked about. You give to them, they're going to give back to you. But he says, give to the, or bring the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Because they don't have resources, they're not going to pay you back. What is he saying here? Why, what is he telling us? He's saying it's going to result in blessing if you do that. It's going to result in blessing if you invite those in, if you engage with those who can't pay you back. And I think this is a direct application of what Jesus had just shared in verse 11. You guys remember from last week where we ended? He says, those that, uh, let me get it right, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's teaching that. He's showing that. He's showing how this ruler of the Pharisees, he's trying to exalt himself right now, in the moment, in the present. He's not waiting for God to exalt him at this time to come. And he says, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to wait. I want you to be completely satisfied in me right now so that you don't have to engage with and invite others that will bring you something in return. You're so satisfied in me, I don't need something from someone else. I don't need to prove myself with who I hang out with. And essentially, this is having faith. God clearly says multiple times throughout His Scriptures, humble yourself, I will exalt you. If we believe that, then we would follow Jesus' command here, then we would bring in the blind, the crippled, the lame, and the poor. And we would operate not on, based on reciprocity, not on a system of rules, but we would operate based on grace. And that's what Jesus is showing here. He says, I want you to think and I want you to operate based on grace because that's how I've treated you. That's how I came to you. That's how, as we'll see later, that's how I invited you in. So when we consider how we're going to be neighbor-focused, we shared this a few weeks ago, that this is a time that we would come together and then we would pray and say, God, how do you want us as a body, who you brought here, how do you want us to engage in this place? How do you want us to love our neighbor outside of this door? How do you want us to enter into their lives? Who do you think about? Who do you think about inviting? Who do you think about approaching? Who do you think about having a relationship with? Who do you envision to share your life with and, your identi- and identify with? Think about who you would prefer to sit next to you in this body. Who you would prefer to share your life with. Because it's not about our preferences, it's about what Jesus is telling us. And think about what that would look like if we truly realize this vision that we say each week, that we would be gospel-centered, that the gospel would be what we have in common, and we'd be multi-ethnic, multi-class, multilingual. That we would be in life, connected with and sharing ourselves and sharing our lives with the with those like that it's a lot to think about it's hard to consider it doesn't make sense it makes me want to think about something else
Because I'm like, I don't know how that's going to happen. And as you look at verse 15, one of these Pharisees sitting here with them, I think that's a similar feeling that he had. Because he says in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In some sense, he's saying, let's change the subject. This is getting too difficult. I don't really want to think about the here and now. Let's actually, I'm a Pharisee. I know the rules, the regulations. I'm a follower of God. Let's be spiritual. Let's, let's raise this and let's think about heaven. Let's think about this banquet that we're going to have and we're going to experience in eternity. That we're going to sit with the King. We're going to sit with God and we're going to be in fellowship with Him. Let's think about that. Let's forget about the here and now. Let's, let's really remove the practical, the material from the spiritual. Let's just focus on the spiritual. And as he does that, Jesus says, we can talk about that. He says, let me tell you a story about that. Let me tell you what that's going to look like. Let me correct your perspective. And he says in verse 16, But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. God is that man. Okay, in this parable, God is the host. This is who Jesus is talking about. He's saying, God gave a banquet. God invited many. And we're to represent, as we read this, we're to reflect our host. We're to look like our host. As we invite people in, as we go, as we gather them, as we encourage them and invite them to this party, we're to reflect our host. We're to look like Him. This is His party. It's not ours. Right? This is not, Living Stones is not my party. This is God's party. This is God's invitation that we could be a part of His church, that we could be His sons and daughters. But we tend to think in the last, on the, the not.com, the last one I held, it says, it's your party. If you don't want them there, don't feel guilted into sending an invite. Even if, you've invi- even if they've invited you to their wedding, or they are friends with a lot of people who will be invited. It's your party. Celebrate it the way that you want to. That's what the world tells us. That's what my heart at times tells me. Well, I want these people here, not those people. And you know what? It's okay because it's my party. And it's not. We need to change that perspective. When we invite people in, when we share the gospel with them, we're saying, this is not my party. This is the party of Jesus Christ. This is His invitation. And this is who He wants us to go after. And this is who He wants us to share with. He's the ultimate host. And he says in verse 17, And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servants to say to those who have been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So God's throwing a banquet. He's telling them who he's going to invite. He sent out the invitations. And at the time that it is for them to come in, they all have excuses. And we have to understand that there in this time was what we call a double invitation. It's sort of like now when you send out for your wedding, you send out the invitation and they send you back an RSVP. So in the same way, this invitation had already been sent. Okay, It was sent with time for people to respond and time for people to make other plans and time for them to consider, am I going to be a part of this? And then once the host received their, received their response and he says, okay, I'm going to have this many people, this is who's coming, then he began to make preparations. And he would prepare for this feast and he would determine the amount of food he had to have and the space he needed. And how was he going to host all of these people that reserved and said they're going to come? 
And then once all of that was ready, he would send them out again. He would send out, as he did here, his servant and say, it's all ready. Based on who responded, based on who said there's going to come, everything is ready, everything's prepared, it's time to come right now. But they began to make excuses. I made the RSVP. I agreed to come. It sounded like a great party. But when the time came for it, I had some other things that were more important. I had some other things that were fighting for my attention and some other things that just really I'd prefer to do rather than go to your party. We accept the invitation. And then when it gets down to it, sometimes it's difficult to actually go. Yesterday, Nita's family had been here for a week, her mom and dad. And in the morning, she's like, do you want to go run with me later after they leave? They were flying out yesterday. And, and she runs daily. I run on the weekends and try and keep up. I'm like, that sounds great. Like, let's run. That sounds so good. Like, I would love to go run. We can go. We can spend that time together. We can run in the park. That's going to be great. So that was about 7.30, 8 o'clock when we were first moving around. And it still felt pretty cool in my house. And then her family left. And by the time we got ready, and by the time the kids were where the kids need to be, it was 12.30 and it was 102 degrees. I said, why did I accept that invitation? Do I really want to go now? I didn't really realize what it was going to cost me. I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be to follow up on this thing, this invitation that I accepted. You guys might have thought it was a good thing to be a part of this church. And then you realize you have to show up in 100 degree weather with fans blowing on you. I don't know that I, that I knew what I was getting into, right? But you're here, but you showed up, but we followed through. But I think sometimes with Jesus, we say, I want a Savior. I'll receive that from you. I'll accept what you've done for me. I, I want to acknowledge what you've done for me. But then it gets the time where we have to follow Him and we have to walk with Him and we have to be obedient to Him and say, well, I want you as Savior, but I don't know that I want you as Lord. I don't know that I want to have to walk with you and follow you and actually follow up this invitation that you've given me. I didn't know I was going to have to lose my life. I didn't know that's what obedience included. And so caught in this situation, we start to make excuses. We start to justify ourselves, the reason that I don't do what I said I was going to do, the reason that I received this invitation from Christ, but I'm not following Him when it comes down to it. We've got all these justifications, all these excuses for why we don't do this. And let's look at their excuses. He says, The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go out to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. We see all these different excuses. But what these excuses demonstrate is it, is it demonstrates first their class. Okay, In this culture, we understand that they have oxen, they have fields, and they have family. They were of a higher class. They had resources. Okay, And they had these other things, these other resources that they had to take care of. So it's very clear by their excuses what type of people they were. 
And it also shows their concern. What were they most concerned about? In that culture, it was an agrarian culture and it was a familial culture. That means that the land and family were the two most important things. My social security was not in the government, not in this check that I'm going to receive. My social security was in having land and having a family. And what are their excuses all related to? They're related to, I've got to take care of the things that are taking care of me. I've got to take care of my security. I've got to go take care of my land and these animals are going to work my land. And I need to go take care of my wife. I've got to have a family. I need all of these things to survive. So that's why I'm not coming to the party. And then last, it shows their priorities. If we lived in this culture and we understood this, we would know that these excuses make no sense. They're completely lame. Okay? You would not have bought five yoke of oxen and have never seen them. Okay? It wouldn't be like, well, I'm going to buy, I bought these sight unseen and I'm going to go figure out if they're good oxen or not. You wouldn't have bought a piece of land and never have gone to see it. If you'd have gotten married, at that time, the whole village would have been there. The whole community would have been there for the wedding. They never would have planned two feasts, two banquets at the same time. Okay? So this guy had been married for a while. Okay? It wasn't that it just happened. They might have been for good things, these excuses. But they were last minute. And I thought about it at work. When I go to a meeting, and it's a formal meeting, and there's everybody sitting around the table and you look at the minutes from the previous meeting and you see who was there and who wasn't there. And then beside it, if they weren't there, it says absent, but then some it just says absent. And then some it says absent but excused. And you're like, oh, well that person obviously had something important, something, a reason for not being there. And you look at those lists that say absent with no excuse beside it and you start to start to judge them. You know, you start to, oh, well, they're going to get it. They're going to find out. Well, what were they doing? Were they down in their office playing solitaire? Why didn't they come to the meeting? But I want you to think about your excuses for not being obedient. Your excuses for not following. I received this invitation. I've accepted this. I've acknowledged Jesus Christ. But you know what? I'm having a hard time following Him. I'm having a hard time being obedient. And what are your excuses? And are your excuses valid? It's not that they're not about good things. It could be that, well, I'm really focusing on my family or I'm focusing on my job. I'm trying to provide. But should those things be a higher priority than my following Jesus Christ? Should they be a higher priority of being obedient to Him? And so in verse 21, after their excuses, He says, The servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes in the city. The master of the house became angry. He was angry because basically they had refused him. They had told him, I'm going to come. And then the time came to come and they said, no thanks. Thanks but no thanks. I'm not going to come to your banquet. I'm not going to come to your party. It just showed that they were hypocritical. I'm religious. I claim to love God. But when I have to choose... I choose myself. When I have to choose, I choose my own provision. When I have to choose, I choose my position because I've got something to prove. I've got this murmur. I'm not satisfied in Jesus Christ. I've got all these other things going on and I need to choose what's going to help me, what's going to prove myself. And it also demonstrated their lack of love for the host. They didn't show up. They didn't care enough about the host to actually show up for his banquet. And think about our excuses for not following Christ. And I would tell you that excuses we have they're just a demonstration of our hypocrisy 
and then we have a limited love for Jesus Christ. It's that simple. If I'm not loving Him, if I'm not following Him, if I'm not actually responding to and living out this invitation that He's given to me, then it just shows that I don't trust Him, I'm not satisfied in Him, I don't truly love this host who's asked me in, who's invited me in. And so angered, the host, he expands the invitation. And again, this is unprecedented what he's about to do, who he's about to invite, who he's about to include. Okay, they would have not expected this. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. So he expanded the invitation. And he says, I'm going to include those who have been socially excluded. I'm going to include all those who you never thought that I would invite in to my party, invite into my banquet. And he says, go out to the streets and the lanes of the city. So literally he's saying, I want you to go out to those who don't have homes, who those are in the streets, to those who are living in the lanes, the vulnerable in Israel. I want you to go to the poor, those that don't have resources. I want you to go to the crippled, those that don't have an opportunity. I want you to go to the blind, those that have no security. I want you to go to the lame, those that have no power. That's who I want you to go to. I want you to go out into the streets to those who don't have a home, and I want you to bring them into my house because I have room and because I want my house to be filled. And this was a complete, 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 complete reversal of what they would have thought and what they would have expected. In those times in the first century, the Pharisees particularly, because of Leviticus and because of the requirements to enter the throne room, to enter the the Holy of Holies, they actually thought that the the, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor, they would not be there. They would not be at this ultimate banquet. They would not be in heaven because of the way they interpreted this. As you look at Leviticus 21, 18 and 19, it says... For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand. They would not be allowed to draw in. And God here is talking about the Holy of Holies, but the way they interpreted it was that in heaven, in this time, at this banquet, to be with God, you couldn't have any of these defects and actually come into His presence. So they expected these people not to be at the ultimate feast. They expected them not to be at the Supper of the Lamb. The servant comes back. He says there's still room. And the host says, well, go out to the highways and the hedges. Literally, I want you to go outside the boundaries of our local city. And in that time, it was really the reverse. For us, the poorest live in the inner city, live in the center of the donut. At that time, it was, they lived on the outskirts, on the edges, outside the city limits. So the poor of the poor, the outcasts, the lepers, and then those Gentiles were outside the borders of Israel. They would have lived outside these boundaries. And he's like, I want you to go not just to the poor, the crippled, the lame. I want you to go to the outcasts, those that we won't even let in our city borders. I want you to go to those dirty, nasty Gentiles. 
This was radical for Jesus to say this. The Pharisees, they were eliminating Israelites. They were deciding who among Israel could and couldn't be a part of this. And now he's saying, no, 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 we're not just talking about Israel. We're talking about the Gentiles. We're talking about the world. We're talking about non-Israelites. I'm going to bring them into my table because you wouldn't come and sit down at it. And in verse 24, he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You won't experience it. You won't be able to participate. It doesn't matter that you acknowledge. It doesn't matter that you RSVP'd. If you're not going to actually show up, you're not going to experience it. If you don't actually walk with me, you're not going to participate. It goes together. I can't do one and not the other. If I follow Christ, if I received Him, I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to be a part of this. So we have to be participating in the preparation for the banquet. We have to be a servant for this banquet. And then we would serve on behalf of the host. Okay, not on behalf of ourselves. And so are we doing that? Are we doing that as individuals? Are we doing that as a church? Would others recognize that in this neighborhood? Who would they identify us with by how we're interacting by our ministry? And when I asked, a few weeks ago as we brought this forward, how are we going to do, how are we going to love our neighbor? How are we going to be neighbor-focused here? I think this passage has huge implications for us to consider and for us to pray through. And so I just want to talk briefly about what this actually would look like. Okay? That's the parable. That's the understanding of it. But I want to go in a little bit more detail that if we're to have this party, if we're inviting people in to this party that foreshadows it's a, out, uh, an outpost of what this eventual party in heaven is going to look like, then who should be our priority? It should be the poor. It should be the crippled. It should be the lame. It should be the vulnerable. That's who we should be prioritizing. It doesn't mean we can't invite our brother and our sister and our rich relatives, but it means we should have a priority for those that wouldn't expect to come. Those who can't come. And so I want you to look in these verses in verse 17 when he's talking about those that he had invited, he gives this verb to call. Okay? In verse 21 he says, I want you to bring in the poor. And then in verse 23 he says, I want you to compel those that are outside. And so just as when you invite people to a party, You've got to think about who am I inviting and how do I need to invite them. There are certain people that I can send a text to and I know they're going to get my text, they're going to respond to my text, and they're going to follow up on my text. I know Trent is someone that I cannot do that with. All right? He is not a texter. All right? For anybody that needs, it's better to leave a voicemail than a text. Okay? But I know that, so I'll leave him a voicemail or I'll check back up on my text to see if Trent's going to actually come. Some I can send an, an evite. I can send them an email with this evite, and they'll respond to it, and they'll, they'll write, they'll follow what everyone else is saying, they'll make comments about it. But some I know, I'm going to have to send them something in the mail. I'm going to have to give them a physical invitation so they'll believe that I actually want them there. And then some I'm going to have to go to face-to-face, have a conversation, and I'm going to have to invite them to this party. I need to have contact with them. And so what I feel like in this passage in this parable, we see the difference in how these different types of people were invited and how they were approached. For the first one, this call that went out, this, this first invitation that went out, it was a verbal proclamation. It was a, a letter that went out and they expected them to show up because they had the resources to show up. They didn't have to follow back up with them. They were going to come in because they received this invitation. 
But once they didn't come, he says, go out now and bring in the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. He says, bring them in. And this is a very different word. It literally means, I want you to lead them and I want you to accompany them to my party. I want you to walk with them. He says, these others, I gave this verbal proclamation. I called them. I made it known to them. But these, I want you to go and I want you to hold their hand and I want you to walk with them and I want you to lead them to my party. I want your life to be connected with their life. Because literally the poor didn't have the resources to get to the banquet. The lame, the blind, the crippled, the blind, they literally had to be led. They couldn't see their way to the banquet. The crippled, they had to be picked up. They had to be carried to the banquet. They couldn't get there on their own. And they wouldn't have expected to be invited in the first place. It's like if I went to a room in my hospital where I work, and I got an order for therapy, and I go in and this patient has had a stroke, and they're, they're paralyzed, and they're completely on their left side, they're hooked up to IVs, they've got a, the oxygen, the nasal cannula, and I go in as a therapist, and I've read their chart, and I understand their situation. They can't walk, they can't move their left side, they're completely dependent, and I walk in the room, and I'm like, it's time to go, let's go, there's therapy in the gym, therapy's going to be in the gym in five minutes, you better show up for therapy, okay? Therapy, come down the hall, show up for therapy, and we're going to have a great session of therapy to this person who is half paralyzed hooked up to cords hooked up to other things that are binding them in the bed and I just expect them to show up for this therapy session in the gym it makes no sense I read their chart I understood their situation and I said hey show up and then I get down to the gym and the time comes and I say they didn't show up for therapy they must not care about their therapy they must not actually want to get better they're just still lying there in the bed half paralyzed hooked up to these lines why didn't they come It makes no sense, right? I have to go into the room. I have to arrange the cords. I have to talk to them. I have to educate them. I have to interact with them. And then I have to put my hands on them. And I have to help them turn to sit on the edge of the bed. I'm helping to balance them up. I'm completely in contact with them. And I'm walking with them. I help them stand. I have to determine, do they need a walker? Do they need a wheelchair? How am I going to bring them? How can they walk and come down for therapy? And in many ways, this is what God is telling us. He's like, I want you to bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You're going to have to go and you're going to have to interact with them. You can't just go and talk to them and share at them and shout at them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to share to them. You're going to interact with them. But I want your lives to be connected. You're going to have to touch them. You're going to have to be involved with them. You're going to have to literally walk with them. You're going to have to give up your time and do that. You're going to have to give up your space and do that. Their lives have to become a part of our lives. Their issues, our issues. Their problems, our problems. It has to be involved. We have to be connected. So that's to bring in. That's verse 21. But then look at verse 23 when he says, for those outside, he says, I want you to go and I want you to compel them. It literally means by force, this strong irresistible force, I want you to bring them in. We're going to um, apply force. There has to be, again, contact, right? There has to be contact with this individual for it to result in action. So I go and I interact with, 
Because these people, they're going to have to be forced because they don't expect to come. They are outsiders. They're so far outside the city. They're so far outside of who we are. Like, you really don't want me there sitting with you. You don't want me to be a part of this. I don't believe what you're saying. You're here. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. I know you don't want me there. And he says, so literally, you're going to have to drag them there. By force, you're going to have to compel them to come. And again, I've got to be connected with them. I've got to be in contact with them. I've got to be walking with them. But I'm literally going to have to pull them. Because... There's no way you want me there. I'm so far outside of who's at that party, who's at that banquet. I, I won't belong. I don't belong there. So we have to compel. And I think when we see this, this idea of bringing in and this idea of compelling, I would say that's, that's biblical hospitality. All right? And hospitality is a weak word here in the States. It's a weak English word. But if we understood it at that time, it is powerful and it is difficult to do. It's not throwing a party and having dinner guests. It's bringing people into your life. Hospitality literally means love of the stranger. So those that are strange, those that are not like me, those that I don't know, those that are not, that don't operate in my same circles, I'm supposed to think about and care about them before I care and think about myself. I'm to love them. We're to bring them into our living space into our lives, go into their lives, and we're to share life together. And as we do that, we treat them like family in the hopes that one day they actually will be part of our family, that they, we would have the gospel in common and that they would be sons and daughters with us, that they would be brothers and sisters. So I'm going to go out, I'm going to welcome the stranger in, I'm going to bring them in, I'm going to treat them like family, and I'm going to hope and pray and share and interact with them so that one day, I'm going to treat them like family now so that one day they might truly be a part of my family, they might actually join us at this banquet. We're to pursue. God pursued us. Jesus pursued us. He came here. He walked amongst us. He walked in our crap. He walked in this place with our issues, with our problems. He experienced it. And He came amongst us. And He lived amongst us. And He identified with us. Our issues became His issue. Completely on the cross. And then He met needs. He healed. He met physical needs. As we started a few weeks ago with Isaiah 58, in verse 7, it says, This is the fasting that God wants to share, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house. It says, Share your bread and bring them into your house. It doesn't say make bread and serve bread and have a place where they can come get bread. It says, Share your bread. Give your bread to the homeless. Share that with them. Literally sit at the table and enjoy that together. Your bread, you're going to share that with them, not just making sure they have bread. And then it says literally to bring them into your house. That gets personal. That gets to be an issue. But it says bring them in to your house. Not make sure they have a house. Not make sure they have shelter. But you can see the relationship that's demonstrated here to bring them into your house. So think about what you would do for your family. I said hospitality, this bringing in, this compelling would look like we would treat others like family. Think about what you would do for your family. How would you open up your house? How would you take care of your family? How would you take care of your family if they had issues, if they were on the streets, if they were poor, crippled, blame, or lame, blind? How would you do that? How would you respond if it was your family? Now how would you do that for your neighbor? Would it be the same? Would it be the same for your poor neighbor? Would it be the same for your poor, crippled, blind, and lame neighbor? 
that comes from a different class, that comes from a different ethnicity, that speaks a different language, would you treat them the same? Are you willing to open up your life and share your life with those who typically wouldn't be a part of your life? Because that's what Jesus is asking us to do. That's what He is telling us to do. He says, I want you to invite those people in. And so as we pursue incarnationally, as we pursue with our lives, to seek and to walk with others, and to help meet their needs, our ultimate goal, as I said, is friendship. And I don't mean that in a weak way, right? We would actually walk and we'd have this commonality with them and say, I am broken too, but I have received this grace and this grace is available for you too. And then one day we might share this gospel in common too, that we would be not just invited, but we'd show up and we'd be able to take part in this banquet. We'd be able to take part in this celebration together. And that's the ultimate, right? That we would bring them in, that we would treat them like family, and that we would treat them and then become friends and know what's in common. And that ultimately that would result in the commonality of the gospel. That's our goal. That's what we're doing. That's why we bring them in. That's why we would compel. It's so that we could share not just verbally, not just demonstrating, but we could truly share the gospel together. We would be, have that in common with each other. That we would be sons and daughters together. And how we do that, I think answers the question as to how are we supposed to be neighbor focused. How do we do that? How, what does that look like? How is that going to look like in my life? How is that going to look like in our lives for us to bring people into our lives, to treat them like family, to compel them by our friendship to be truly part of this gospel, to be part of this family that we are, that God has invited us into. I want to read a quote. It says, Jesus' teaching, it consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. I looked that up, it means our most cutting-edge ones, okay? Avant-garde. I didn't know what it meant. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated, or the broken and the marginal, avoid church. That can only mean one thing, if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Those are strong words. I want Livingstones to be that kind of church. I want my life to be that kind of life. That we would declare and we would demonstrate the same message that Jesus declared. And the only way as we pull all this together, the only way we can do that is if we are completely satisfied in Him. If we've gone to Him, if we've accepted this invitation, if we're following Him because I am trusting Him, I have faith in Him, I can humble myself now because He's going to exalt me later. I can trust His words. I have faith. I believe what He tells me. I believe His promises. And I'm going to act based upon them regardless of how I feel because that's what He's told me. And I trust Him and I believe Him. We have to be completely satisfied with our host. Because our hospitality should reflect the hospitality that we've received. The hospitality that Jesus Christ has shown us. That's the same hospitality that we're to show others, that we're to show those strange people. We were poor. We had nothing to offer for our salvation. We were crippled. 
we were all powerless by our sin. We were blind. We were unable to see the truth about Jesus. And we were lame. We were unable to come to Him on our own. And He brought us in. He picked us up. He made the way. He pursued us. And then He compelled us. And I would tell you that He lived the life that we should have lived. And He died the death that we should have died. And He took our place. In the most compelling event, the most forceful event, the most incredible event of all time would be that Jesus Christ went to the cross and that He died for us. That's the most compelling event in history. That He would bring us in by that force. That He would give up His life. That He would become poor so that we could be rich. And you can't share that hospitality if you haven't experienced it. If you haven't received and are experiencing that hospitality of Jesus Christ, you can't give it to others. You can do it for a little while, you can try really hard, but it's going to run out. The only way you can do it is because you are satisfied in the host. It's His party, not our party. I want to be there at that party. I want you guys to be there. And I want God to develop in us a passion that we could look out this window and we could look in these buildings and we could look around these streets and we would truly desire for them to be there with us, for others to be there with us. We have to go out, we have to bring them in, and we have to compel them. We have to figure out how to do that. That is our job. We are the servant. He is the host and He has sent us out to do that. So let's pray and let's ask God to show us what does that look like to bring in and what does that look like to compel. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, even as Melanie and I were talking about this message this morning, Father, that there's, it just seems like the Pharisees were so blind, Father. They didn't know, they didn't understand, Lord. They thought they had everything together. And Father, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to think that I have it together. I don't want to think that I'm doing everything right when according to your word according to your heart it's not father so i pray that through your word i pray that pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to us father lord that it would divide our hearts and it would get down to our excuses father and it would deal with them lord that you would be our savior and that you would be our lord that we would follow you lord that we would go out and that we would invite and give a priority to those that you want to give priority to Lord, that we would literally bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Lord, that we would go to the outsiders, those that think that there's no way that they could be a part of this, no way that they could fit in here. That we would compel them, Father. Lord, give us a love for You. Lord, satisfy us in You completely, Lord, so that we can do that, so that we can go out and so that we can be Your servants. Lord, we, we look forward to, Lord, we're excited about, we hope for that day when we get to sit at the table with You, when we get to have an eternal Sabbath with You, when we get to be resting with You in Your presence, Father, completely trusting You and complete freedom, Father, with You. Lord, we look forward to that day, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.